Well, last week uh, we started by talking about how useful demonstrations are when those demonstrations help prepare us for direct instruction. Uh, so, for example, uh, when Julia was in her medical school training, she'd tell me about how the instructors would uh, have them in various situations and the students would be asked to uh, see one, do one, teach one, which was apparently a method of instruction developed by a surgeon. See one, do one, teach one. Uh, so, so you watch the procedure and then you would do the procedure and then you would teach someone else how to do the procedure. Um, but, but it's those first two points that are of particular interest, the see one and then do one, uh, because we learn best when before we're expected to retain certain material or perform certain functions, we do best to first have an example set before us. Uh, we need the demonstration. And as we mentioned last week in our studies in John, we saw that it's exactly that principle that John is employing as he's helping us see the extraordinary nature of who Jesus is. Uh, beginning in chapter 2, John has been demonstrating to us how Jesus is the supreme one. He is the one who's worthy of our belief. Uh, all through chapters 2 and 3, we've seen this. So Jesus is the better bridegroom at the wedding who provides completely uh, Jesus is the better temple who makes a way for our pure worship of God. He's the better revealer who shows us the truth from heaven that we must be born again. Jesus is the better rescuer. We look to him and find relief from the judgment of God. He's the highest expression of God's love. God loved the world in this way that he sent his one and only son to save us. And then last week, we saw how John the Baptist puts a big punctuation mark on everything that we've been seeing with the, with the summative statement about his posture toward Jesus. He must increase, but I must decrease. So all through chapters 2 and 3, we see that Jesus is the better one. He's the supreme one. Uh, John, our gospel writer, has given us demonstration after demonstration. He's given us example after example uh, that shows how Jesus is preeminent. And now in our section this morning, following all of those examples of the greatness of Jesus, following all those demonstrations, uh, now in verses 31 to 36, John is going to give us some direct instruction. Uh, we had the pictures, we've had the examples that got our attention and show us that Jesus is superior. Now it's time for the specific teaching. So in verses 31 to 36, uh, John now steps into the midst of all of these stories from Jesus' ministry as one commentator puts it, John makes a, a narrator intrusion here, and he gives us some direct instruction with regard to the supremacy of Christ. And we're ready for this instruction because we've been seeing it play out all through these last couple chapters. And now is the time for us to sit with this direct truth centered on the high place of Jesus. And it's truth like this that we need uh, because we face days and weeks and years, we face lives uh, that so easily can have elements present in them which draw us away from trusting in the supremacy of Jesus and instead present to us uh, kind of pseudo-supreme realities that vie for our affection and our trust. Uh, so, for example, Tim Keller, he would, he would talk about those kinds of things which absorb our heart and our imagination in ultimate ways, uh, those things that aren't Jesus, that absorb our, absorb our affections. Uh, and we recognize that this can happen. It's this highest thing over here that's going to give us hope or, or that will make me happy. This will bring restoration that I need. That will be the solution. This, this will be the, the root source of peace that will really bring me the rest I've been longing for in my life. There are these things that vie for our attention and affection in those ways. 
But ultimately, what we have from the Gospels, what we have from the totality of Scripture, is none of those things can satisfy. None of those things can actually bring the lasting life that we need. Instead, uh, we need to look to the superior one. We need to look to who Jesus is and what it means that the life he's purchased for us is eternal. And so it's the truth of Jesus' superiority that John sets out before us in a very direct way in these verses uh, that come to us at the end of chapter 3. And so just to give an outline of where we're going in this, in verse 31, uh, John speaks to Jesus' supremacy of position. That's what we have first of all there. And then in verses 32 and 33, John speaks to Jesus' supremacy of testimony. And then in the last section, in 34 to 36, John will say something about Jesus' supremacy of supply. Um, so we have position, testimony, and supply, which are emphasized here. This morning, we're actually going to just make it through the first of those two sections. So we're going to save the last one, verses 34 to 36, Jesus' supremacy of supply. We're going to save that for next week. Uh, this week, we're just going to work through Jesus' supreme position and testimony. Uh, so that's, that's what we'll look at together. So we'll begin with verse 31. Again, you can follow along as we study this. The supremacy of Jesus' position is where we begin. And if you see there in verse 31, John tells us, The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. Positions, we know, are important. If you occupy a low-level position in the company, the sway you hold, the authority that you have, the influence you exercise, it's not very much. Uh, however, when you occupy the corner office, so to speak, everything is different. And here John speaks to the supremacy of Jesus' position. He is the one who is above everything. There's universal superiority that's reflected here. In fact, John repeats that phrase twice in this one verse, that Jesus is above all. He, he sandwiches the verse with that truth. And, and John helps to clarify his point by providing a contrast within what he says here. Uh, so he contrasts Jesus, who comes from above and is above all. He contrasts Jesus with the one who comes from the earth, who is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. Now, now to understand this contrast, we have to recognize what John is emphasizing and even a little bit of what he's not emphasizing here. Uh, we have to notice that, that John doesn't say he who comes from the world is worldly and speaks in worldly terms. We might have expected John to say something like that, given how the term world has, has often been used as a negative contrast to what Jesus brings. Um, but John doesn't say worldly here. He says earthly, and he repeats the word three times in, in this one verse. And so as we think about this, we realize that John is making an emphasis here that's different than he's making when he references world in other places. Remember how world in John uh, is a technical term, not so much for bigness, but for badness. We've talked about that. So in John's gospel, world is used to reflect that, that fallen and sinful sphere of humanity that's in rebellion against God, that, that God has loved and sent Jesus to save. Uh, but, but that's not what John is bringing up here specifically. He uses this word earthly instead. So, so he's not bringing up the sinfulness of our human condition in contrast with the above all position of Jesus. Uh, but instead he's using the word earthly to emphasize the frailty and finiteness of our position in contrast uh, to the above all position of Jesus. So, so this is the contrast. Again, we have uh, flavors of what John has already brought up between creature and creator distinction 
already in this gospel. There's the supremacy of Jesus and then there's the, the frailty of us as the creatures that, that have been made through him. Um, so, so the limited createdness of humanity is in view here in contrast with the fact that Jesus comes from above. He comes from the heavens. So, so Jesus' origin, if we can use that term, even though Jesus had no beginning, but, but Jesus' origin is not in, in the created realm of earth. Instead, his origin is in the realms of, of heaven's eternal glories. Uh, we are, are from the realm of the, of the frail, right, of the limited. And given where he's from then, given where Jesus is from, John tells us that Jesus' position is preeminent. He's above all. There's a universality to the greatness of Christ here, especially when it's set uh, all the more vividly in contrast with our earthly finiteness. Okay? And, so, and so this has implications for us as we reckon with this Jesus whom John is calling us to believe in. Remember that the whole point of, of this gospel is that we would be believing in Jesus. That's what John is driving at constantly in his, in his instruction to us. And, and this direct double statement about Jesus' supremacy here certainly points that way. At two times, John says, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who comes from heaven is above all. There's clearly this uh, emphasis on the preeminence of Jesus' position. And so we need to think this out a bit. Uh, on the one hand, the supreme position of Jesus here, it, it does have just massive universal implications. Uh, we, read Colossians, we read Colossians 1 for our call to worship on, on purpose this morning. Jesus is the, in, uh, the image of the invisible God. You know, in that passage, Paul is making the point for the Colossian believers that, that Jesus is the preeminent one over all of creation and redemption and reconciliation and judgment. He is the one who's over everything. And all of that truth is implied here in John's statement. Jesus is universally above and over all things. Um, so it makes us think of that Abraham Kuyper quote where he says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all does not cry, mine. Right? And that's true. Je Jesus has the highest position. All things have been given into his hands. Verse 35 here will tell us. And that's true. John, John will want us to reckon with that truth. And we need to think about that truth well. Um, be, because if I'm going to be trusting in Jesus, I need to understand the significance of his preeminent position over the totality of my life and how I think about the world around me. Jesus is preeminent. He's above all. That means he's above my marriage. Right? Do I act like Jesus is master of my marriage? Or do I want to be master of my marriage? Right? Jesus is above the direction of my life. Do I, do I take the weight of life's direction upon my own shoulders? Or do I entrust my days and my decisions to his masterful and wise care? Jesus is above my speech. Is the, is the way I speak about others constrained by the purity and grace he calls me to and, and has shown to me, though I don't deserve it. Jesus is above all. Jesus is above all hopes for reconciliation and salvation. Do I take it upon myself to do the best I can to build myself up to look as good as I can in the eyes of God and the people around me? Or am I entrusting myself to the preeminent work that Jesus is doing in making me new? Jesus is above all. There, there's no political power. There's no social agenda. There's no historical moment or personal grief or occasion of joy. There's no debit card purchase. There's no screen time indulgence. There's no relationship pressure. There's no party or funeral or Monday morning commute that Jesus does not stand over in complete sovereign supremacy. Right? John, John is certainly speaking to that kind of truth here. The one who comes from above is above all. And along with that, 
there's something else here for us to be thinking about, too, especially as as we're considering what what to take away from this statement about Jesus's position over all things in contrast with our finiteness as we're working toward building up a belief in Jesus. Again, that's the direction John is taking us, trusting in Jesus. And so, and so how, do we, how do we think about the supremacy of Christ as it relate, relates directly to our general process of growing in trusting Him? And part of what we can take from this is we recognize that to truly believe in Jesus means that we do not come to Him in ways that make us feel most comfortable and in ways that fit our categories just right. He's the preeminent one. So part of our process of trusting in Jesus and growing in that is to recognize we're actually called to trust in the one who exists outside of space and time and is over the entire reality of the cosmos and supremacy, which means that to be trusting in Jesus, to come to believe and to be believing in him, as John calls us to do, is not first and foremost an exercise in figuring him all the way out. Instead, to be believing in Jesus is first and foremost an exercise in yielding to him as he reveals himself to be. Whether, whether we can put all the pieces together or not. Right? Leslie Newbegin, he comments along these lines in his book, Proper Confidence. He says this, If the supreme reality is a personal God whose we are and to whom we are responsible, then there is something quite absurd about the posture of those who claim certainty about God in their own right and on the strength of their own rational powers. And the statement from John about the universal supremacy of Jesus, it confronts us with that reality. As we're called to believe in him, Jesus will not be found to be a Jesus of our own making and our own complete understanding. Instead, to truly know Christ will be to yield to the one who comes from a place far above the finiteness of our comprehension and enters into the reality of our experience. And that, on the one hand, can be troubling truth for us because we like to be in control. And so to know that Jesus exists beyond the complete grasp of my finite mind, that can be frustrating. If, if I'm going to follow Jesus, I just want to know how everything works. I want to know why he has ordered things the way that he's ordered things. I want my understanding satisfied. I want my understanding of my past, present, and future satisfied. I want my understanding of my circumstances satisfied with what it looks like to follow him. I need to know. But that's not how it works because the one who comes from above is above all. And, and our starting position in relationship to Jesus is not complete satisfaction of understanding. Our starting point and continuing point, for that matter, our position is one of yielding to his preeminent position. Believing in Jesus doesn't start with totally getting everything about him. It starts by saying, you are great and I'm small. You're the eternal one. I'm the finite one. And I know you, and I know, you know my need more than I ever could, and so I will entrust myself to your masterful care. I will yield to you. And, and so we can check and just see where our hearts are in relationship to this truth about Jesus' preeminence this morning. Um, am I looking to Jesus from a place of false confidence in my rational powers, as Newbigin put it? Or am I looking to Jesus as the one who is from above and above all? Uh, one way to assess our posture along these lines is, is to ask and answer this, this question. Uh, which I actually find uncomfortable, but here's the question. When I don't understand things about Jesus and the way he works, does that frustrate me 
and cause my trust in him to be diminished? Or does that humble me and cause my recognition of his supremacy to increase? Let me just read that again. When I don't understand things about Jesus and the way he works, does that frustrate me and cause my trust in him to diminish? Or does that humble me and cause my recognition of his supremacy to increase? In other words, do I say, when I don't understand you, Jesus, I trust you less. I feel that trust diminishing. If I'm really going to be trusting you, I need to know how things are going to go. Or do I say, when I don't understand, it's just another reminder of how extraordinarily high and above and worthy of my worship you really are. So here John gives us some direct instruction on the supremacy of Jesus' position. And this is critical for us as we engage in the process of growing in our belief in Jesus. So that's first. Secondly, John moves to speak about the supremacy of Jesus' witness. So we have the supremacy of Jesus' position, now the supremacy of Jesus' witness or testimony. Um, this, is, this is verses 32 and 33. In fact, let me just read those again for us. Verse 32, he testifies to what he has seen and heard. And yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. Okay, so here we have a connection in a sense back to the previous verse. Uh, now to that, the one who is uh, from the earth and earthly speaking in earthly terms. John picks up on that message theme, that speaking theme, and reflects here on Jesus' message, on his testimony. And what John is telling us is that in Jesus' teaching, Jesus is witnessing to us about the plans and purposes of God as one who has firsthand knowledge of these truths. Jesus testifies to what he has seen and heard. Um, so, so Jesus enters the realm of humanity from the heavenly presence of the Godhead, which means, as Carson puts it, that, that he can reveal heaven's counsel to us. Jesus doesn't speak like John the Baptist, for example, would speak, who, who was an inspired prophet, no doubt, but, but who declares the message given to him from his finite earthly condition. And we even see that effect in John the Baptist's life later on when he'll send messengers to Jesus when, he's, when John's in prison and ask Jesus, are you really the one? John has just been spending his whole entire ministry saying Jesus is the one, but there's still this consternation in his earthly, finite, uh, frail heart about what's really going on in this. But you see, Jesus doesn't speak from the earth as an earthly one. He speaks with the conviction of the totality of heaven's knowledge. So Jesus witnesses to heavenly realities and salvation and judgment truths in the way of God's working. He witnesses to all of those things with this supreme firsthand knowledge. Uh, the phrase seen and heard there, in verse 32, that's a, that's a colloquial expression that, that emphasizes certainty. So, for example, if, if you listen to a news brief about something that's happened downtown, you have knowledge of it. Uh, but if you happen to be walking by in that part of downtown when the incident takes place, your knowledge is much different, isn't it? Because you saw and heard. And, that, and that's what's being emphasized here by John. Jesus speaks from a place of certainty and even comprehensiveness of knowledge because he comes from the eternal recesses of the presence of the fellowship of the, of the triune God who is the fount of all knowledge and purpose. So says one commentator, Jesus can speak with supreme authority of heavenly things, for he alone testifies to what he has seen and heard in the heavenly sphere. 
the supremacy of Jesus' testimony. This means that when Jesus speaks, there can be no room for discounting his word because it is exactly, certainly, divinely true. So, so one immediate point of application is that of Jesus' reliability. We know people, we are people, who have had the best of intentions, but maybe we've spoken beyond what we can deliver. Our finiteness gets the best of us. We've let others down. We've been let down by others, sometimes in very big ways, and things said and yet left unfulfilled. But we see from this, uh, as, a, as a mere basic point of application, everything about Jesus is different in this regard. His word is absolutely reliable because it is conveying truth that is sourced in the eternally uh, undisruptible presence and domain of God's absolute holy reality. So, for example, Jesus will say in John 5 that to trust in him means that right now we've passed from death to life. That's his testimony. That's his witness. Which means that there is no doubt that if you are trusting in Jesus, when you die, death can't hold any kind of final grip on you because Jesus' word is absolutely, supremely reliable. Or for Jesus to speak about forgiving sin. There is no way to overemphasize how much it is true and cannot be changed that if he promises forgiveness for all of our sins, all of our sins are forgiven. Right? There's not one tiny little molecule of guilt-inducing gunk left on the scrolls of God's justice for you if you trust in Jesus' promise of forgiveness through his work on the cross. Full stop. So, so Jesus' witness is supreme because he speaks as one who has ultimate knowledge of the eternal counsel of the triune God, and it does not get any more certain and true than that. No wavering, no doubting, all complete truth. Now, in saying this, we actually have to be prepared to work this out carefully. Um, and I'll go down one kind of rabbit trail with this, but, but not, it's, not too, it's, it's a wide trail. It's a wide trail. But because there are some who will read a passage like this, and, and then they'll say something like, okay, Jesus' testimony, his word is preeminent. They get that point. Uh, but then they'll go on to say something like, we notice the obvious contrast between maybe Jesus and John the Baptist in the section before. So, so some will say, John the Baptist's words are important. And while the words of the Old Testament are important, and while the words of the Apostle Paul, maybe for example, are important, what we're really going to do is we're going to occupy ourselves, some will say, with the words of Christ recorded in the gospel because his witness is preeminent. So, so you have these, these red letter type, type folks. Right? It goes something like, if you happen to be so blessed with the red letter Bible, pay extra attention to those words because those are the preeminent words in the Bible. They're Jesus' words. It's like a Bible within a Bible. Right? And some hold that position. But there's a lot of trouble with that. Uh, first of all, we just need to know that the words of Jesus in the Gospels aren't the exact words of Jesus. The New Testament was written in Greek. When John tells us that Jesus said something, he says what Jesus said using the Greek language, except in the context of the day, the words Jesus would have been speaking were Aramaic words. The language of the day was Aramaic. Right? So the words of Christ in red doesn't work because even if you're reading an original of John's manuscript in Greek, you still don't have the exact words of Christ because he spoke a different language. Right? Which, by the way, legitimizes all Bible translation. You have the Spirit-inspired account of those words, entirely trustworthy, authoritative, potent, inspired by God's design in Greek for us. Right? 
But we have to be careful with these kinds of things. Jesus' words are not, are not a Bible within a Bible. And part of how we have a proper view of that is to know that the witness of Christ validates the Scriptures as all being God's Word to us. So as we take Jesus' Word as the preeminent Word, which we do, we recognize by His preeminent Word, He makes the totality of the Scriptures God's preeminent Word to us. So if we want to pay attention to Jesus' witness, we have to pay attention to what he says about the whole Bible. The whole Bible testifies to me, he says in John 5. Right? In the wilderness, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy to stand firm in the face of temptation. When Jesus confronts Paul, Saul at the time, and then calls him to be an apostle, he commissions Paul to be his witness. So when Paul speaks to the churches as he does with his apostolic authority, it's as if Jesus is speaking. So some will say, I'll take all of what, what Jesus says. I really, I really like most of that. I'll take it seriously. But I won't take all of what Paul says. But if you do that, you're not taking all that Jesus says. You see? Read Acts 9 and Paul's call there. Or Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 14. He says that if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. So Jesus' word commissioned Paul with Jesus' authoritative word to disobey Paul is to disobey the word of Christ. Right? And in Jesus' word confirmed the Old Testament as divine revelation of God. To disregard the Old Testament is to disregard the word of Christ, you see. So, so from a verse like this, speaking about the supremacy of Jesus' witness, we can't start working with a Bible within a Bible thinking that the words of Jesus here have more weight than the other words of Scripture. Instead, we have to realize that Jesus is the supreme revelation from God who ultimately validates and fulfills all the Word of God from His position as supreme witness. And that has enormous implications, not least of all when we think through the response of people to the supreme witness of Jesus which is exactly where John goes, goes on uh, here to speak about. There's implications here. So if you look at the rest of verse 32, we're told that one of the responses to the testimony of Jesus is that no one accepts his testimony. That's what John says. No one. Now we know John's speaking in an exaggerated way, purposefully, because in the very next line, some do accept the testimony. But John's emphasizing the point that more often than not, the testimony that centers on the truth about Jesus is not received, it's rejected. This isn't the first time he's brought this up in his gospel. So Jesus witnesses to the heavenly truths of God's purposes for the world, purposes of both judgment and salvation. Jesus witnesses supremely to God's plan. You know, this is how God does things. And for those who will believe and trust in me, Jesus says, salvation will come. For those who will reject me, judgment will follow. This is heavenly truth straight from the realms of, of the glories of the sovereign God's eternal presence. And many reject that truth. I will not bow to Christ. I will not yield to him as king. I do not need Jesus to be okay. Science is my new religion. Family is what sustains me. A community involvement is my purpose. I try hard to be good and that will be good enough. No, Jesus says, from the council of heaven's glory, I witness to the fact you are not okay. But some will reject that truth. Though not all. Some will believe. Verse 33 speaks of those who accept Jesus' testimony. Actually, there's interesting language there of sealing. I think if you're reading from the ESV, it has that translated that way. The, the CSB doesn't. But, but the Greek text uses language that speaks about those who put their seal on the testimony of Christ. And as they do, they affirm that what God says is true. Um, in, in 
the contemporary culture of the day, a person may have a ring or a stamp that contained their personal seal. They'd maybe seal a scroll or sign some important document with that wax uh, stamp. And here it's that picture that John brings up. For those who put their seal on the testimony of Jesus, so for those who affirm or certify or attest to the fact uh, that what Jesus says is true, in doing that, they are saying God is true. That's what he says here. It's, it's quite the statement John makes. Now, least of all, when we consider the alternative, which, which John does in his first letter in 1 John 5, where he says, the one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. Right? And in other words, the testimony of Jesus is so sourced in heavenly perfection that for, to reject any of his testimony is to say, God is a God of fraudulent deception and falsehood. He's a liar, which is blasphemous. But to put our seal on what Jesus says, so to speak, as one writer put it, to say, through Jesus I have heard God and I testify this message is authentic and not a forgery. To do that is to affirm the truthfulness of the personhood of God. So again, John is bringing us to a place of, of introspection. The, the supreme uh, reality of who Jesus is in his witness is so significant that by affirming what Jesus is saying, I am affirming the divine truth of the Godhead. And, and the natural correlation is present here. By rejecting what Jesus is saying, I'm calling God a fraud. And so here again, we, we just check ourselves by this. Is, is, there, is there something from the testimony of Christ that we've decided is not true for us. We live in a day where truth seems to be quite selective. It may be true for others, but it's not true for us. That's a dangerous place to be. Is there a place in our Christian lives where what Jesus has said is clear, but we've decided it isn't true for us? And saying that, uh, which, is, which is a dangerous place to be, uh, is, to, is to ultimately testify that God himself is not trustworthy. However, as we say Jesus' testimony is true, instead of finding ourselves against God in that way, we actually find ourselves aligned with his eternal, with his eternal redemptive truth, which, which is really something. And, and we, could, we could almost miss this here, just in terms of a point of application. But you notice that John doesn't say here, if you always live out the testimony of Christ perfectly, you affirm God is true. You notice he doesn't say that. He says if we accept his testimony, if we affirm his testimony, that, that means we're affirming the truth of God. But which, which leaves us open to actually what's coming next in the passage with the woman at the well. You know, where, where perfection of life is not what we bring to the table. Instead, belief in what Jesus bears witness to is what we bring to the table. Which, which means that, that my affirmation of Christ is not to say, look at this perfect life, and as I live in this exactly righteous way, I'm affirming what Jesus has said is true. Because actually a big part of affirming what Jesus is saying is true is the fact that I have to live a good deal of my life in Psalm 51. And I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me, David says. We don't affirm the truth of Jesus' supreme witness with a life of perfection. We fail, we stumble, we know that. We affirm the truth of Jesus' supreme witness with a life of repentance. What he has said is true. Jesus, you say, come to you and find rest. That is your witness. And I've wandered off again, and so I return because I know your word is true. I know God is true, and you will receive me as the Savior of sinners receives. So I come to you and I yield to you. That's part of what it means to put our stamp of approval on the message of Jesus. He has said, I am in deep need of a Savior. 
And I'm going to spend my life demonstrating that reality, like it or not. And then there's another side to that too, isn't there, where Jesus will speak later about loving him and obeying his commands. I put my seal on the truth that Jesus witnesses to when I say that is the obedient life that I want to live. The things he calls me to do, the way he calls me to live, the ethic he calls me to employ in response to his great grace in saving me and making me new. That's what I want to be my thing. That's what I want to be, the method with which I live my life and view my world and those things. I love him and so I want to obey him. And both a life of repentance and this life of obedience, these things are what we bring to the, we bring to the reality of our Christian life, stamping our seal upon the fact that what Jesus says is true. And so we live in those ways, acknowledging that while we might feel, feel weakness at times, we might feel our own uh, pressure to, uh, to, to move from a place of, of wallowing in, in, in sinful behavior or whatever it may be to a place of living, living in, a, in, a, in a way that reflects obedience to Jesus. While we feel those kinds of pressures and all this, we see that we're not called to ultimately rise up, pull ourselves up and do those kinds of things. Instead, we're called to look up. That's what this text is doing. Look to Jesus as the one who ultimately is superior and who offers to us the word of truth which brings us forth and keeps us going and calls us to return and promises salvation time and time again. He's the one who establishes what is actually true in redemption and creation and judgment. And so we return to him time and time again saying, Lord, I may have wandered off once again, but I know, I know that you have the words of eternal life. And so we're affected by this. His supremacy is something that's held at the forefront of our own thinking as we walk through uh, the, the Christian life together. We look to the one who's supreme by believing in him because he is the one who comes from the realm of heaven's glories with the word of life. So the one who comes from above is above all. We'll continue to think this out together next week, Lord willing. Let's pray. So, Father, we pray that we would be affected by this truth, that we'd be drawn out in an affirmation of the witness of Jesus, that through the totality of Scripture, uh, Jesus' work is placed before us. The, the call to turn to Jesus is placed before us. The call to return to Jesus is placed before us. And an assurance of the life that he purchased on the cross is placed before us. We're thankful for this true testimony. We affirm its truth, and we ask that we would live in light of it honoring you with all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen.